Hello folks, this is Maddie B. I hope y'all are having a wonderful day whenever you're listening to this. I am the host of There's Too Much To Think. Um, if you are new here, you know that I will usually do true crime with the occasional side tangent, spooky, or history related in between the big cases so we can all have a bit of a palate cleanser. Um, with this episode, as you can tell by the title, is kind of giant. So here are your trigger warnings before I get into who the victim was, who the killer was, how they died, and whether or not she ended up in prison. I am happy to say that she did. So your trigger warnings for this episode include cannibalism, domestic abuse, specifically with the man being the victim, um, and... I will mention a brief puppy death and the uh, intricate workings of a slaughterhouse because that is where Catherine worked. Um, It's like half a paragraph of my notes, so it shouldn't be too long, but there are your warnings. And there's also brief suicidal like mentions because she tries to commit suicide after the crime um, as a way to get out of prison so um yeah those are your warnings so let's get into who john price was According to a book entitled Beyond Bad, The Life and Crimes of Catherine Knight, Australia's Hannibal by Sandra Lee, um, which is an incredible book, by the way. I have it linked in the show notes. You should go get uh, check it out when you have a minute. It is amazing. The audiobook is like 10 hours long, and it is so excruciatingly detailed, but like in the best way possible. It is so great. Anyway, according to the that book, John Charles Thomas Price, otherwise known as Pricey, was your regular Australian dude. He had a great work ethic and was known to stop by uh, at one of the two pubs in Aberdeen, Australia. There was only two. Um, and this is where the town all took place, or where all of this took place. His life was kind of all over the place. Uh, His family were travelers, not because of money reasons, but simply because they wanted to. Uh, He was the first of four children, and he had grown a close bond with his his mom, Cynthia. Um, I know as people who regularly read, write, or listen to true crime, the terms close bond and mother in the same sentence don't, they're usually raised a few red flags here however that is not the case his, he and his mom were just close it was that um while he wasn't particularly great when it came to school barely being able to read and write at the age of 15 he had all sorts of life skills he was driving tractors learning how to lay irrigation pipes and creating complex irrigation systems and building dams like he was all over the place in the summer of 1972, 16-year-old Colleen Jones 
was getting a milkshake after working hard pulling weeds in the town's cotton fields. Um, because that was a very big moneymaker back um, in this place back then. I think it's called Weewa. This is before Aberdeen. Um, before he meets his killer. So, according to her, he, he had, well, just in general, he had brown eyes, a round face, and thick curly hair. At first, um, Colleen and Pricey were just friends, but according to an interview with her, quote, one thing led to another, and we went on motorbike rides, and we just got together, end quote. The two fell hard and fast, already talking about marriage and a life together, um, and Pricey was exactly six months older than Colleen, so... Shortly after Colleen turned 17, she was pregnant. While this was unexpected, the two couldn't have been happier. They were already planning to get married anyway, the minute Pricey turned 18. Which is exactly what they did. Three days after Pricey turned 18, the two of them got married. Afterwards, the two would spend years on the road in a caravan, just the way they liked it. Uh, Pricey followed work wherever it took him, working... Uh, wherever there was heavy machinery keen for adventure. Shortly after this, they would have a son named Jonathan, followed shortly by a uh, girl named Rosemary Kay. Um, when Jonathan was uh, old enough to go to school, he managed to do his work remotely, while Rosemary was too young to go to school. So they ended up having a third child a few years later a girl but her name is not known um my guess is she was still a minor um when this book was written maybe or just she just didn't didn't want to be associated which like fair uh but pricey worked on dams and colleen actually worked to get an articulated truck license as well as working on, like, engines and stuff like that. She was also very handy, uh, while also taking care of the kids. So after moving back home shortly, uh, once the dams had been built, Pr Pricey's lifeboat was rocked by a single shot from a rifle. John, Pricey's dad, and Cynthia, Pricey's mom, were camping with Pricey's younger brother, Bob, and his common-law wife, Glenda. After work, they all opened a few beers. By a few, it ended up being um, a couple dozen. Uh, after dinner, and this is the most Australian sentence that I'm going to say, Bob and his parents decided to go kangaroo shooting. But the drinking led to the arguing, and the arguing led to shooting. Um, when they got back to the camp after hunting, which they did shoot a one kangaroo, which the book calls it a roo, because it's an Australian author, and I, that's just so funny to me. Um, Bob went to his trailer and started loading his own shotgun while his father was doing the same um, and it, at his trailer. So Bob saw his father through the door of his trailer um, and aiming for the light by the door of the other trailer and hoping 
that this would just shock everyone into coming down, he fired. He missed, and the bullet went straight through Cynthia's head, right above her left ear. She died at 43. According to Colleen, Pricey never forgave his brother. Um, she also said that a part of Pricey died that day. He was still a nice guy. He still cared for others and would do things for people with no questions asked and with nothing in return. In fact, the only reason he and Colleen would later get a divorce about 15 years down the line is because he was too giving to everyone but themselves as a couple. Like, she was like, we never had time as a couple. We were always parents, and he was always wanting to be with his friends, which she was like, that's not a problem, but, you know, I wanted more. So, they left. It was a completely amicable divorce. Um, um, she said, like, he was still all these nice things, but you can look at him and know something was missing. So, yeah. Uh, he was, like the, like I said, the divorce was completely amicable to the point that when Colleen would go on vacation with the kids, he put $500 into her account, of which he would deny that he had ever done such a thing for spending money. Or when she asked if he could come fix her fridge, when he had some spare time, he went to another town and, and bought her not only a new fridge, but also a freezer. According to her, quote, that was just who Pricey was, end quote. And with that, we're going to get into the asshole, the bitch, the cunt, whatever you want to call her, who took this man's life away. He was a loving father. He just wanted to get work done. That's, that's what he wanted. He wanted to get work done, he wanted to fish with his friends, and he wanted a beer after work. That was his life, and um, his kids. And while he, like, it's later reported that, like, he didn't go into any sports stuff um, with his kids. Uh, and it's because he knew. He was like, I might get a temper, and I don't. I don't want that for my kids. I don't want to yell at them for something that they're enjoying because they did it wrong or they, they made a mistake. So he just didn't go to those. But other than that, he was very a part of his kids' lives. And the woman that I'm about to talk to, talk about, will try to excuse her behavior based off of mental illness. That's not how it works. People can get help for their mental illness, especially her type of mental illness. There are places for people to go who are struggling with her mental illness, um, which I get it. It was, it was the turn of the freaking century and therapy wasn't a thing. I don't care. I don't care. This man went out of this world in such a gruesome and horrible way. There's nothing you can excuse it. And I will be bringing up a puppy death 
So, you have been warned there. And I will be bringing up briefly, um, work at the meat plant that she used to work at, because she used to work at a meat processing plant, as well as, like, all of her family, um, which normally wouldn't be a red flag, but given what she does to this man, it becomes a red flag on top of everything else she was allowed to do without any repercussion. So, let's get into it. As you can already tell, I'm heated. I am... I'm heated with this woman, and I'm glad she is rotting behind bars. Alright, let's get on to Catherine Knight. Um, as I tell you all of this, I would like to remind you to feel bad for the child, do not feel bad for the adult. According to an article by All That's Interesting, as well as all my other sources, Catherine Mary Knight was born on October 24th, 1955. She and her twin sister were a product of an affair between Barbara Rogan and Ken Knight. Now, the book doesn't mention this, the book that I've talked about multiple times at this point. Um, doesn't really mention this, but most of my other sources do, so I'm going to mention it here. Um, Ken Knight was reportedly a violent alcoholic who would rape his wife on several occasions. Um, her mother also apparently told her twin girls about her sex life in detail when they were very young. So, uh, Catherine Knight would later claim that she was also sexually assaulted by her father. That being said though, this murdering piece of human filth is also a compulsive liar who constantly said that her past partners were the ones abusing her rather than the other way around. So take her claim with a grain of literal salt, especially considering that there is no evidence. Um, so about the whole Ken Knight and her mother telling their, um, their children about her sex life, I am not sure if that is real. But I do know for a fact that her mother used corporal punishment on her frequently. And I have a feeling that if multiple of my sources state that, then there might be some truth. But the book says that she used corporal punishment and they were strict parents. So, which doesn't surprise me given the fact that this is 50s. So, and the only thing she had in common with John Price was her lack of being able to read and write. She wasn't very good at school either, having to take the fifth grade twice and leaving school at 15. While at school, uh, she was already showing signs of being a violent person at 13 years old. She was put in children's court, but she was a minor at the time, so the records are sealed and the charge is unknown. Um, another time, a year later, Knight and a few of her other friends, which I'm surprised she has friends to begin with, um, were walking home when they were getting catcalled by fellow teenage boys. Um, given the fact that this is 50s, 60s, the girls were giggling, happy for the attention, except for Catherine. Catherine apparently was carrying a long-bladed knife that she just, you know, just had. It just, like, appeared. Um, according to somebody who was interviewed, 
the person in the book is called Robin Smith, but that's not their real name. So I don't know. Uh, but according to the book, she said, quote, come on, if you want to have a go at us, come on, um, end quote. So, yeah. Which, like, that time, maybe not, like, knives, but that, that I would get a little angry at, like, being catcalled. Um, that's where it ends. So, uh, from at 16, she went into the family business working at a at the town's slaughterhouse. So this wasn't a particularly red flag as most of the town worked there. It was like the main thing in Aberdeen, Australia at the time. And her entire, like her entire family, even her mom, who was like super anti-feminist and like stayed home, took care of the kids. That was her job. She was very anti-feminist. And she said, nope. I don't work. My husband does that. So she ended up, um, which is a difference between, I want to say this right now. There's a difference between being a stay-at-home mom and an anti-feminist. She was an anti-feminist. Feminism did not, was not a word that was said in that house. Um, so, because you can still be a feminist and be a stay-at-home mom. Regardless. So her her entire family worked there, even her mom, who uh, didn't really work uh, when times were tough. So um, this is where things got dark and they got dark fast. While at work, she worked in what was called the slicing and awful floors. Uh, for those who have never worked in a slaughterhouse before, and just because I find the efficiency interesting, um, I don't know if I said this at the beginning, I am going to go into a little bit of detail about these two floors. So if that is not your thing, you have been warned. Because uh, I am recording this on different days, <laughs> and I can't remember. So, uh, But I'm going to be talking about these two floors, and also a puppy death, which I think for certain... I mentioned at the beginning um but I this this was like a side tangent that I was genuinely interested in just because of the efficiency so I'm only going to be talking about these two floors so slicers and those who worked in the awful rooms were two of the lowest of the hierarchy only barely above the rendering floor which for those who don't know rendering floors when you use all that unusable stuff and you render it down into a paste um, it's used in gelatin. Think about that every time you have jello or sour gummy worms or anything like that. Um, I try not to think about it, but so rendering, right? Take everything, at least they're using all of it. But, uh, slicers were those who, after the meat had been properly dressed, cleaned and whatnot, cut off all the excess fat of the meat to make sure that it was like presentable for sale uh then there were those who worked on the awful floor which was the floor underneath the slicers and they were called that because they had to clean up the blood and the guts so where knight would later say once again according to quoting the book she says quote she enjoyed getting the blood out of the bone marrow and cleaning it out end quote so it is highly suspected, but she used the skills that she learned to become a slicer to commit a, the crime 
that took John Price's life. So Catherine also started fights at work, no fucking surprise there, when someone threw a bit of meat at her as a joke, which apparently that was like a common thing. Um, uh, she grabbed the man who had done it, um, brandishing her knife for she said, once again, according to the book, like seriously guys, go read the book. I have it linked in the description. Go read it. If you don't get queasy, go read it. It is so good. Um, the audiobook is great. Um, just wonderful. But she says, according to the book, to this man, as she's brandishing her knife, quote, if you ever do that again, I will rip this through you. End quote. With like a crazy look in her eye. So oddly enough, at work, this is where she met her first partner, David Keller. Much like Knight's father, uh, he enjoyed a bit too much alcohol. Knight would later claim that Kellett was the one abusing her, but according to the ample evidence that says otherwise, and in an interview, uh, Kellett never touched her. Uh, the two had two daughters together amongst their fights and constantly leaving and getting back together. Because, as it turned out, after a fight, Catherine would use sex to lure her victims back in. That surprises nobody. Um, there were multiple incidences where Catherine used force. Um, on the night of their wedding, they had sex three times already, but wanting to go a fourth time, Kellett... <laughs> she had woke Kellett up, so he was asleep. Because he's been drinking all day. It's his wedding. He's gone three times. He's exhausted. And he fell asleep. And she... Her main anxiety at this point is... He's not attractive enough. She, He's not attracted to me enough to go a fourth time. Which, by the way, she is super plain looking. But, like, don't look up a picture. Just go to my Instagram. Which will be in the show notes. Because if you look up the picture like I already looked it up for you so you don't have to you will find not only pictures of her you will find the food so don't do it don't do it your stomach will get queasy you will find crime scene photos and you will find the food so um so yeah, Kellett, sleep. Because he's had sex, sex three times already. He's been drinking. He's tired. Um, but she was like, no, I want to go one more time. And so she woke Kellett up by strangling him half to death. So tired of this treatment, Kellett would go uh, and have a couple affairs in their 10 years of marriage. After discovering one of these affairs, Knight had put... Her, their infant daughter in the middle of some train tracks and just simply walked away. She wanted to get back at him. Something you will see as a common thread among her string of partners is getting back at them for something that they did or did not do, but she thought they did. So luckily the child was saved by a nearby neighbor who had seen her uh, before anything happened. Somehow though, the child was given back tonight after this. 
Um, Knight also liked to threaten several people with an ex. Uh, she was later diagnosed with postnatal depression after she was swinging her baby violently in a stroller down a busy street. Um, she would spend a couple months in a mental hospital where she would tell everyone that she was going to kill Keller's mechanic for fixing his car. Kettler's... Kellett's... Oh my, oh my goodness. Kellett's mechanic for fixing his car because now he could leave her. And she also wanted to kill his mother and herself. So yet another common theme. In the mental hospital, it was revealed through diagnosis that Knight had personality borderline personality disorder. How it took this long, I have no idea. So, according to an article written by doctors Robin S. Baskin and Joel Paris from the National Library of Medicine, they, uh, these are the nine criteria based on the DSM-IV at the time, quote, or not quote, one, frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined ab abandonment. Two, the individual has a pattern of having unstable and complex relationships. Three, has a skewed version of um, their sense of self. Four, impulsively, impulsively, um, impulsivity, <laughs> my goodness, that is possibly damaging in at least two areas, such as sex and spending and so on. Five, Reoccurrent su suicidal behavior of such thing, uh, behavior threats of such things. Um, six intense mood swings. Seven rages. Eight stress-related paranoia, and finally nine chronic feelings of emptiness. This all sounds really familiar, doesn't it? It is important to note, however. This is not a psychiatric disorder. It is a personality disorder that affects mood. The person who is doing an action to hurt somebody else while they have a BPD episode knows the difference between right and wrong and knows what they are doing the entire time. It is not like psychosis. It is not like a psychotic break. It is not any of that. She knows what she did the entire time. The way it works is BPD will get you so worked up that you simply do not care about the consequences. And up until this point in her life, besides the one time that she went to court, nobody fucking gave her consequences. None. She has done so many things. She's put two of her children in danger she has threatened several people with an axe she's like nicked somebody's face like at some point she even like claiming that her daughter was sick she goes to a neighbor and the neighbor takes them to the doctor's office and instead she practically kidnaps her neighbor and her neighbor's son who is in the vehicle with them and takes them to Kellett's house. That, there are so many things that should have gotten her in jail before this. I just want to point this out. But instead, the entire time it was, quote, this was just Kathy. 
Which I'm like, don't give her a fucking nickname. Say it all. Say it all. Do not. Okay. Anyway. I'm trying to I'm trying to keep my anger under control, you guys. So I don't blow out your eardrums. So Kellett managed to get out of there, luckily. Um, and it was time for Catherine to get another partner. Because another thing you're going to notice is she doesn't like to be alone. David Saunders liked Catherine well enough. She was fun, laid back, and acted completely normal at first. But then, once she had gotten her claws into him, the facade fell away. According to an article done by Murderpedia, Saunders moved in with her a few months after they began dating, but he kept his apartment in Scone, a town not very far away in case he, his work as a miner ever um, called him to a job outside of town. It was easier to go to that apartment than to go all the way to Aberdeen. Um, this was a point of contention between the two of them as Catherine thought he was using the apartment to cheat on her based on Kellett's, based on her history with Kellett talk to a fucking therapist she explains in the book that she could she would go from telling him to go to the bar um saying like oh like go hang out with some friends like i'll make sure there's tea like when you're when you get back you know i'll put it in the oven so it's still warm um only to call the bar and scream at him to come back 20 minutes later if he went against her wishes, say he was finishing a game of darts or a beer, and he would be a couple minutes late, he would be he would be met with a raving and physically abusive woman. At one point, she even hit him in the back of the head with a frying pan. And when he came to, she had come inside from the backyard with a bloody carving knife. Trigger warning for animal abuse. She was covered in blood. And in an interview with Sandra Lee, the author of the book, as I keep saying, Saunders said that Knight had come in from the house saying, quote, there's your dog out there. That's what I think of you, end quote. She had cut open the throat of Saunders' eight-week-old puppy, all because he had arrived home 20 minutes late. Oh my God. In June 1988... They had a daughter together, making the child, that child, number three. At this point, Saunders was in too deep and he didn't want to leave his daughter alone and he couldn't get away. So he put a deposit down on the on a house and Catherine paid the rest of it off with the help that she had got from hurting her back at work, which eventually put her out of commission right up until she went to prison. According to an earlier, according to, oh my goodness, according to nearly all of my sources, Knight had decorated the house with animal skins, skulls, horns, leather jackets, and even taxidermy that she had done herself. Now listen, my grandma does taxidermy. I have family members who have animal skins, mostly cows. Um, and I have animal, or I, have, I have family members who have gone hunting and they put a deer, you know, head on their wall, right? that's all normal but in in hindsight this is a literal house of horrors so Saunders sadly had to leave his daughter one night when Knight had hit him with an iron you know the thing that you iron your shirts with 
and stabbed him in the gut with a pair of scissors and that eventually made him go into hiding. Um, luckily, however, he was able to reconnect with his daughter when Knight went off to prison, which I'm very happy for. Um, with Saunders gone, it was time to find yet another partner because she couldn't be alone. Next came a 43-year-old man named John Chillingworth. Life was the same between the two as it had been for, with her past partners. First, it was all sunshine and daisies. Then they had a son named, together named Eric. Chillingworth was super happy about this. He'd always wanted to be a dad. His dad wasn't there for him. He wanted to be the best dad in the world. Um, but they had arguments and they had this. They, it was about the same stuff that I've already told you about. But instead, Chillingworth fought back, unlike her first two partners. Um, their relationship didn't last long, only three years, because, get this, it was Catherine who ended up cheating on him. Isn't that fucking ironic? So, enter John Price. New to town, fresh off a of divorce. He would chat up Kathy at the bar. This decision but ultimately costs him his life. Before we get into the crime, however, I want to talk about their life together. So at first, just like the first three, things were good between the two. According to a red-handed podcast episode, um, they were a party couple. They would go out to the two pubs, they would have a good time. But then the cracks began to appear. Just like the first three relationships that I've talked about. Everything about everything was about manipulation, entitlement, and vindictive behavior. Pricey stayed out a little past when Catherine allowed him to, notice, allowed him to, and to get revenge, she videoed him stealing a first aid kit from his mining job uh, that he had taken on once the dams had been built, as I mentioned before. She t would look, or she took the video to his manager, which got Pricey fired from his job that he had worked at for 19 years. To add insult to injury, the first aid kit was expired and his boss would have had to throw it out anyway. He throws her out, but she comes crawling right back. And she... gets back. At this point, his friends, who have helped him out previously, were kind of sick of all the ranting and him not listening to them, and so they left. And I'm sure... You know, they come back in the end, kind of, but like it's really difficult because you want to be there for your friend, but when they aren't taking any of your advice and all they do is rant at you and that's all they talk about, it is extremely draining. I have been in that situation on like the receiving end of having to deal with a friend that just keeps coming, keeps coming, keeps coming, and it sucks. So this is where John started to notice that he was completely isolated with her. He had no social life, and now he had no job, and he had to find another one. Luckily, he gets one, but not for very long. She was doing what typical abusers do, right? Isolation. He needed to get out of there, and he knew it. 
He was starting to tell people every time she hit him, screamed at him, and so on. But no one ever wanted to talk about domestic abuse when the, quote, big tough Aussie guy, end quote, was on the receiving end. It was toxic masculinity central at the turn of the century. Two days before his murder, Catherine and Pricey had gotten in a huge fright. Uh, Knight had even pulled a knife on him. Here's the kicker. Knight was the one to call the police and tell them that Pricey was abusing her. Uh, Pricey told them once they got there, uh, he, he told them the truth um, and told her, them to get the, her out of the house. Reportedly, the police said that they would have that he would have to get a court order to get her out of the house but she when she didn't even live there full time because she's still at her own home um just imagine if the roles were reversed um i hope you're as bad as i am the next morning Catherine ordered a restraining order against him but stayed in his fucking house she will not leave the house violating it on her own terms it is like she's setting up her defense in court but she is more than a bit moronic no i will try my best not to go into gruesome detail but at the same time there are parts that i just can't avoid so on to the crime and on to the trial you have been warned by the title alone, by the trigger warning in the beginning, it is gory. It is gross. And I hope to God you aren't eating anything if you are squeamish. Again, according to that same podcast episode done by Red Handed, Pricey had warned everyone the previous day that he didn't show up to work if he didn't show up to work the following day that he uh, it was because knight had killed him his co-workers begged him not to go home and keep in mind this is his new job his co-workers begged him not to go home but he feared if he didn't knight would kill his own children in his stead as a way to once again get back at him so when Pricey didn't show up to work the following day, people knew something was wrong. His boss ended up calling the police to do a welfare check on him. The police arrived at the house with no lights on. No one answered the door, which had blood on it. This was cause for them, this was cause for them to break in. Um, I want to make it perfectly clear that at this time, there were only 1,500 people in the whole town. I apologize for the people that are screaming outside my door. Gotta love the paper-thin walls. Um, hopefully, it will be covered by the sound of my partner enhancing the audio and me playing music over it. Um, regardless, this was cause for them to break in. I want to make it perfectly clear that at this time, there were only about 1,500 people in this whole town. These police officers knew this man. They had hung out at the bar with him and at barbecues. Once in the home, they saw from the front door something that was blocking the hallway from view, the hallway into the 
um, living room. Um, to them, it looked like a curtain, but with the horrifying real- realization after moving the quote-unquote curtain out of the way, they realized it was the headless human skin pelt of Pricey. Next to the pelt was his skinless, dismembered body. From this, there was a blood tra- a tr- blood trail. Uh, his head was no longer nowhere to be found. From this, there was a blood trail into the kitchen, as well as blood that was all over the walls and the floor. Um, this blood trail went all the way to a pot in the stove, which had been boi- boiling to make a stew. His head was in the pot. Knight had made five steaks out of him, and it was clear from what was found at the scene that she was planning to make more food. Um, she was going to feed this to his children, who luckily weren't there at the, um, weren't there at the time. They were somewhere else for the weekend. But Pricey only had four kids. So, the fifth one went out to their dog. It is unclear if the dog ate the steak or not. Despite all the blood and gore, the scene looked incredibly domestic. The table was set with name tags and everything. So at first, the police thought it was a family meal that had gone horribly interrupted and some murderer had come in and destroyed this peaceful family. The police continued to follow follow the blood spatter, getting darker and darker and more and more. Um, until they went to the bedroom in the back. Based on how dark and how the blood had pooled, um, it was clear that Pricey had been attacked there initially before being dragged out into the living room to be dismembered, decapitated, and skinned. A, um, I can't remember who it was, but somebody had testified at the trial that this process would take about 40 minutes even if you were as skilled as she was so they heard snoring behind them in the bed Catherine Knight had taken some sleeping pills and like the coward she was hoped that it would end her life so she wouldn't have to go to prison for her crime Five days after the murder, Knight woke up from her pill-induced coma, claiming that she couldn't remember anything. But she did accept that she had killed him, but it was because of the abuse that she had suffered throughout her life and once again at Pricey's hands, I hope you are as angry as I am. This woman is thankfully rotting in prison and will never get out because, get this, the police didn't believe her for a second because no one would. She is reported telling people that if she ever did a crime, she would get away with it because, quote, the police would think I'm mad, end quote. And mad is insane. So. Man, she is just a vicious bitch. Okay, um... At the house, it is revealed that Pricey and Catherine, uh, the night before had watched some Star Trek, had sex, and based on the black lingerie that was covered in sperm in the bathroom, she had also taken a shower. She did everything 
decapitating, skinning, dismembering, cooking. She did everything I told you about earlier in black lingerie, then took a shower, and then had the fucking audacity to take a thousand dollars out of his wallet. Take a thousand dollars out of his bank account at around half past midnight. An interesting quote that I found in a book that, um, in the book that is also quoted, uh, quote, quoted another author, uh, Patricia Pearson says about women killers, quote, it is easy to understand the violence as something beyond their control. When a woman explodes and does bad things that is blamed on other causes that diminish or null her culpabilities, end quote. Later in the same paragraph, it says, quote, not bad, just a little bit mad. Not bad, just unable to help herself. Because we won't concede aggression and anger in women. The language we use to describe what they do is much more limited and much more exonerative. Excuse me. End quote. Again, this was found in a book by Patricia Pearson on female killers. Society finds women as innately innocent, quote, when maybe they shouldn't be. The trial was a year later, and it wasn't about whether or not she had done it because she did admit it, uh, but it was whether or not she had been, quote, mad as she claimed she was. She starts with a non-guilty plea, but halfway through she changes to guilty. And by halfway, I mean three days because she couldn't handle it anymore. I'm sorry, what? Couldn't handle it anymore? Where was that when you butchered a man like he was an animal? Where was that? Butchered a father. Cooked him. And then if his children were there, you would have made them eat it. Where was that? And as the first female in Australia, she was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole, carrying out her sentence at the Silver Water Woman's Correctional Center. She is currently alive at 66 years old, and I hope she is getting the shit beat out of her. There are things... That is, I don't know if I'm ever going to do a cannibalism case again. If I do, it's going to be like a year from now so I can give myself, because like I can hear, I can hear about all this stuff of researching it and trying to just find a picture of her um, without finding a picture of what she made right next to it. Um was really hard so I don't I don't know if I'm going to do another cannibalism case um so yeah um just to let y'all know next week I'm probably gonna do something spooky I know I've hit you with all this other kind of stuff and it's like come on another spooky one but I I need something like cryptid I need something like a ghost the things that I have seen for this case you guys wouldn't believe so with that let's look let's uh conclude 
So, with that, guys, that is the end of this episode of There's Too Much to Think. I hope you enjoyed. Um, if you are listening on places like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, or what have you, uh, please rate and review this podcast if there's any places that you can review. Um, it really helps a ton. Share this with your friends, share it on your Instagrams, um, stuff like that. If uh, you do have Instagram, I now have an official Instagram for this podcast. It's called There's Too Much to Think Pod on Instagram. <laughs> um, I have it in the show notes down below, so you can just copy and paste that into your search bar because I have no idea how to attach a link to it because I'm dumb. Um, also, this episode was edited by my boyfriend, um, Melotonin on YouTube, M-E-L-L-O-W-T-O. N-I-N on YouTube. Once again, copy and paste that into your YouTube search bar and you will find it. He does funny stoner stuff. You'll love it. Um, my sources are linked down below as well as a, um, as well as the national, uh, domestic abuse hotline, um, 800-799-7233. I want everyone to know that anyone can abuse anyone. It is not, it is not just one-sided. It, while women are more likely to be physically abused, men also get physically abused. And just because men aren't getting physically abused does not mean they aren't getting emotionally abused. And same for women. Everyone can have a shitty partner who does awful things to them. It does not exclude you just because of your sex or your gender. So, please try and seek help. I know that there might be some people out there who are currently struggling, who are now isolated from their family because of their partner and are scared to reach out to your family, to your friends, to any support. But please do. I promise you, your friends, your family, your support group are waiting to hear from you. They are begging to hear from you. So... I'll get off my soapbox for a little bit. But if you enjoyed this episode, please share. Um, once again, there's too much to think pod on Instagram. Um, and yeah, check out the sources down below. Um, yeah, check out that book, you guys. If you're not squeamish, check it out. It's really good. Uh, the audiobook's like 10 hours long, so it's a long one, but it's worth it. Um, and yeah. I'm going to stop now before I start rambling too much. But uh, that's Maddie B. Signing off. <laughs>